0: Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything
1: at all. I'm Helen Kiskin-Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Jijong, a culture writer and critic. This week we're talking about conversations with friends and The Staircase, two adaptations about secrets and pretense.
0: Fantastic.
1: How have you been this week, Jenny? I am doing fine, once again suffering through the yearly affliction of spring allergies oh you know, yes it it comes to us all what, what can we do
0: it does i never used to have it and now i do so here we are yeah
1: um, yeah yeah it's also a thing that, that like developed is. out of nowhere for me i think uh in college mm-hmm. and you know are you on the meds
0: not yet for some reason every now and again my eyes blow up yeah but no I've, I've been okay i've been trying to like wash my face after going outside which helps oh a lot that's a good idea yeah
1: very good yeah. idea
0: so, um
1: so. but yeah how are you felon
0: Oh, I'm grand, tanks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's sweating your tits off season. So that's mm. what I'm doing. You know, like it was really hot in New York y- yesterday. Yeah. And uh, what a nightmare. What a nightmare of a city to navigate just in the summer.
1: Awful. Yeah. Fucking Humid. Terrible. All the concrete absorbing all the heat. Uh, yeah. Everyone's like weirdly horny,
0: but not in a good way. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I and mean, slightly but, uh, sticky. and, it's and just and, and, gross. Yeah. But yeah, I've been all right, you know, going to the cinema, watching films, talking to friends. And speaking of Ooh. talking to friends. <laughs> Great. What have oh, Yeah, I mean, it's what we do um, if we have them, you know. So what have you been watching this
1: week, Jenny? Very smooth handoff. Thank so you. I have been watching Conversations with Friends, which is newly out on Hulu. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is of course Hulu and BBC three's second adaptation of a Sally Rooney novel. In this case, it's her debut book Conversations with Friends. Mm. So, this series was created by some of the same people that made the TV adaptation of Normal People two years ago, Mm -hmm. including, you know, there's, like, co-writer Alice Birch, co-director Lenny Abramson, several of the EPs. So, a lot of, you know, overlap because, obviously, they wanted to maintain some continuity because Normal People was a pretty pretty decent hit. Uh, So, they wanted to sort of recreate that magic. So, to get into what this specifically is about... Like Normal People, it's 12 episodes, a mini series about young people and their complicated relationships, I guess you could say. Mm. So, in this story, the main character is university student and poet Francis, played by newcomer Alison Oliver – along with her best friend and former girlfriend, Bobby played by Sasha Lane. Mm. They strike up a friendship with an older couple consisting of successful writer, Melissa played by Jemima Kirk and her husband actor, Nick played by Taylor Swift's boyfriend, partner, Joe yep. Alwyn, Mrs. Swift, uh, Mr. Swift, Mr. Swift himself. <laughs> so while Bobby and Melissa gravitate toward each other in that, you know, foursome, the more introverted Francis and Nick develop their own mutual attraction, which very soon turns into a full-blown affair. Mm-hmm. And so all of the complicated things going on with that, the, the fallout, uh, everything having to do with this affair and other things. Yeah. So, yeah. there There's a lot of chatter about this show. Not necessarily great right now. It all came out at once, so it's not going to mm. be like a, a weekly release. So people were able to get an idea of the full scope of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, what What about you, Pellin? How far are you into the show? And what are your thoughts on it so far? Okay, just a bit of background. Yes. Have you read both of the books? Yes, I have. Okay. Somehow I've read all of Sam- Sally Rooney's books, which... Uh, also me. Yeah. I have to say, like, just to, to go on a tangent, but I don't think I used to be a fan of Sally Rooney. I was kind of like... Meh, a normal people mm-hmm. and conversations with friends but mm-hmm. her most recent book beautiful world where are you I've read that and I think that as well as Sally Rooney's um you know interviews profiles mm-hmm. where she reveals more of her thoughts and herself and her like opinions on things I think I'm a, I, I would say I'm a fan of hers now yeah um so I read normal people first and loved it mm-hmm.
0: but, and then I read conversations with friends and did not like it mm-hmm. and I found among, amongst my friends that also read her shit, I found that it was definitely like split. Like you, yeah. if you yeah. liked conversations with friends, you did not like normal people and vice versa. Mm-hmm. so I have watched all of this series so far mm-hmm. and I've got to say when they announced that they were going to make this into a tv show wasn't really excited like straight up if you didn't pick this this week I probably would not have watched it unless I was like in a severely dry spell in the middle of like August <laughs> when no tv was coming out and I'd already caught up with stuff and I would have been like, yeah all right let me give this a go anyway that being said I, I guess before I go into my own thoughts what, what do you what do you think of it?
1: Well, I went into it, I think, kind of prepared to not like it Mm -hmm. because I'd been seeing reviews, I'd been seeing opinions, and people I respect, like, who's writing I respect or critics I like, a lot of them were not that into it. Mm -hmm. Um, Compared to normal people, which I think most people consider a good TV adaptation, a good series. Yeah good performances you know a good story like themes everything about that yeah yeah it all worked it was clicking and I I can say that for myself too because I actually took this opportunity to finally watch Normal People which I hadn't done before yeah Yeah. Um, and I thought it was good I watched that before I started uh, I watched it before I like fully completed Conversations with Friends I thought it was good yeah
0: yeah yeah no I mean Normal People was one of my favorite TV shows to come out the year that it came out I've forgotten when that is um, 20, 2020 I There believe. you go. Yeah, really. I really liked it a lot, especially because I had no idea how they would <laughs> make it interesting on screen. It's such an internal book.
1: Yeah, like so. As of much- like much of Sally Rooney's stuff is about oh, yeah. people longing or texting or emailing yeah. each other, and and just like being yeah. in their head about stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, obviously both of the performances were star making um yes there was a whole good like, chemistry yeah there was like a whole like connell hive that came out after that
1: yeah, yeah dude. i support that yeah truly completely of course um yeah but yeah no the, i it, love that show man yeah and this book and this series conversations with friends it is more difficult i think it's um it's a hard thing to adapt and i think you can see that a little bit in the show mm-hmm. so again like i came in with these sort of low expectations mm-hmm. i watched the first couple episodes didn't like it, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. kept pushing through because I thought it'd be, you know, an interesting conversation regardless. And, well, I'm glad I kept watching because the second half of the series is, I think, much better than the earlier episodes Mm. in a way that's kind of astonishing, just like the the difference. So, yeah, I'll just say, like, outright, I think the first half is... I think the word that I've seen used to describe in at least one review, which I agree with is uh, anemic. Yeah. It's like very thin, a yeah. little bit stretched out. Yeah. The, the story that, that they're trying to put in there. it's it's very like a pale, a little bit lifeless, I felt. The performances were not quite there for me in the first few episodes, as well as like this uh, the character, like character studies. Who is Francis? Who is Nick? And more importantly, like, what do they see in each other? Like, what actually draws them together? Mm-hmm. So I was not really convinced of that in the start. But obviously, that the sort of changed as the series progressed. But yeah, yeah what about you, Pell? what was your sort of initial thoughts as you were watching the early episodes? Yeah, I completely agree. The first half, I was
0: just like, wow, <laughs> uh, we're literally just hanging out. Really. Yeah, yeah we're just hanging out like that. that's all it is um no plot just vibes uh mm-hmm. very gentle plot don't get me
1: wrong there is definitely yeah. part but um, very like yeah it feels both like the relationship is rushed uh, but also like nothing is happening at the same yeah. time
0: what what was working for you in the second half that wasn't working for you in the first half
1: a few different things. So I think around episode maybe seven or eight is where I started to feel like this is good. I'm actually really interested. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last few episodes, especially I thought were great. So I think this is finally where they show how Francis like narcissism and, mm. uh, you know, kind of weird behavior and stance uh, and view of herself and other people that starts to catch up with her yeah and it's sh- when the show actually starts showing the consequences of that there's that terrific you know fight with bobby there's a terrific fight with jemima kirk's melissa but i think maybe for some viewers this comes a little bit too late because yeah. they really pack in everything in this this latter half rather than maybe distributing it a, a little bit more throughout the the whole thing. Yeah. Um I also thought the performances were a lot better. So mm-hmm, Sasha mm-hmm. Lane, who I thought was like quite broad and a little bit jarring in in the mm-hmm. first couple episodes, she is a l- really good in in this back half and yeah. uh Oliver, I still think her she's a little bit green as an actor um, not totally convincing me all the way but she also improves I think towards this back half and Mm -hmm. we, of course you get more from Jemima Kirk which is like always a pleasure so yeah those are some things that were really working for me in the back half of it
0: I noticed you didn't mention Joe Alwyn
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes let's let's zero in on that sure Um, I mean it's hard to say exactly I can't figure out if I liked him or did not like him in this mm, performance he mm. Like his character and like his actual real life public self, mm-hmm. um, Joe Alwyn, the celebrity, the actor, he's kind of a cipher uh, that I don't know what to make of. Uh, yeah. what about you? Okay. So I understand why he was cast. Mm-hmm.
0: Cause in the book, he is meant to be this conventionally attractive, kind of basically like physically speaking, could be any hot guy, mm-hmm. but is also like really quiet. Um, yeah, and I I think he nails that part of it. Mm-hmm. But my issue with him is a he's blonde which just automatically I I am not into blonde men mm-hmm. at all. Sorry to the Aryan <laughs> race. Um <laughs> but it's just, it, in terms of like sexiness, it doesn't really do it for me. Secondly, he kind of, I feel like Joe Alwyn is the type of guy that will be really hot when he's 50 or 60, but right mm. now he just kind of looks a bit weird. I, I, I don't even he know has, how to describe it. He has it. an
1: interesting face. Um, very interesting. It is like Ken doll, where he is yeah. convention. he is very handsome, fa- he, he, but he on the other hand, it gets a little bit doll-like, I guess, to continue oh, yeah. the Ken doll uh, comparison. It doesn't look quite real or uh, Uh, natural at some Uh, points and not to say like he i think this is just what he looks like but it is a very interesting place it's both you get that it's attractive but it's all also a little bit uncanny at times
0: but i get why they're casting because a it matches the description in the book B, Mm. him being cast with jemima and the fact that they feel a little bit mismatched as a couple like you kind of don't get why they're together which, which again really works I just didn't root for the root for him and Francis, which yeah. I again, I, I, I can't blame the TV show because I didn't root for them in the book either.
1: Yeah. Cause I, I don't even think we're supposed to, or we might not yeah, be no. supposed to. Yeah, there There no. is no like supposed to one way or the other, but yeah, I, I agree. And that like that made it kind of hard to get through the first half here because mm-hmm. of course you're like, what is this couple? What is their emotional connection? Because I don't see any of the emotional connection. Mm-hmm. I don't see any of the physical. You know chemistry either. Like both of these yeah. performers, there I would g- describe them both as like somewhat cold performers. Yeah, I didn't see that the heat, the attraction, the electricity that supposedly drew them so tightly in together. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I I didn't see that either, and yeah. I think it also doesn't help that uh, Oliver looks so young. Mm-hmm. Um, of mm-hmm. course she is young, but oftentimes she looked just like a, a high schooler, and I was yeah. like this. I, I can't see this working for me yeah. as a viewer. I, it's off putting to get yeah. through this. I didn't mind that. So,
0: because I felt, I felt like it was trying to prove the point of. I, I, I suppose of, so. Yeah. Because, you know, you and I, we've talked so much about coming of age 2.0, which is basically your 20s, right? So that's mm-hmm. like the second half. And I feel like that's where Rooney excels in her books mm-hmm. in terms of exploring yeah. the themes and like what, what you're thinking about and what is your entire world essentially. And. I I don't know. Like I I liked how fragile she was, especially in the first first half of it, and how her fragility paired with her like selfishness essentially just kind of like mm-hmm. fucked it up for herself. I don't like, know. Like, This I, is
1: youthful folly, more or less. Oh, a hundred percent. And like the
0: fact the fact that like. <laughs> I I I totally get that like their chemistry didn't really get it but like the first scene with them together when they're sitting on the side of the dining table um mm-hmm. over at their house um mm-hmm. and they're both like mad quiet doing that like quiet intellectual thing of like laughing or like looking at each other awkwardly and like that's how they're meant to you know, that's what they like in each other, essentially, that they Mm -hmm. don't talk much. (laughs) 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 I thought it was really good because the joke that I've always had about Sally Rooney's books, her whole deal is that you're only as intellectual as your next boner or like as your next like (laughs) horny encounter. (laughs) Like, uh-huh. it's all just monkey brain, really. If we're thinking about it, like, you can dance around the whole, um, communism and what, who are we and where are we in this world? And then you see someone hot and you're like, fuck. <laughs> and like, mm. that's, that's the draw of it. Cause it's true. There's truth in that. So I, mm. I liked how they kind of navigated why these two got attractive. I just didn't really care. But again, again, don't care for it in the book either. So that's the thing about Alice Birch is like, I think the thing that people loved about Normal People was that it was so true to the book and it was such a faithful adaptation of it. And I think this is true for this. It's just that I feel really vindicated because I feel like the reason why people don't like it is because that's the parts that suck about the book. So
1: I I feel fine. (laughs) I feel fine about it. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's pretty true to the book, uh, no matter what. And although they, of course, they had to like sort of make some changes, I think, especially... Mm. Regarding, like, their – how Nick and Frances, like, so much of their initial attraction develops through, like, email and text, Mm -hmm. that's hard to show on screen. So, Mm -hmm. I think I – yeah, it it raises these questions, I think, about the difficult act of adapting Mm -hmm. and how, like, conversations with friends is inherently – more challenging to adapt Mm -hmm. for the screen than normal people so Mm Alison Herman she in her review she pointed out like normal people if you break it down to the core to like the core essential elements it is a more conventionally straightforward romance between Mm -hmm. a boy and a girl become you know a young man young woman that is a romantic narrative that we are more used to like of course Sally Rooney complicates it normal people this series they complicate that um, but at its core, it is like one person who is dancing around with another person in this relationship throughout the course of their youth and their young lives. And this is just inherently kind of a thornier story to work with. Yeah. The characters are, I would say, probably less likable or more demanding in a sense. Mm-hmm. And I think as the screen adaptation at, at times it struggles to gain a handle of that. And then, of course, you know some people might just not like that. And inherently, like you said, you yeah. weren't a fan of the book. A lot of people probably are split, like you said, in the normal people versus conversations of friends camp. Yeah. So, yeah, adapting is – it's not easy. And I think it didn't help either that Sally Rooney was not as hands-on involved in conversations with friends, the adaptation, compared to normal people, which she yeah. helped co-write for a lot of the, yeah. the parts of it. But, like,
0: saying all of that, the things mm-hmm. that I did like about this was just that feeling of I think it really captures, you know, your 20s where everything mm-hmm. and nothing matters all at the same time. And yeah. you don't really have a handle on what your priority should be, really, because you're still mm-hmm. essentially an adolescent. You feel yeah. like you are performing adulthood and then being burned by the decisions that you make with that very, very weak belief. And I I like that about this because like you see someone navigate something as complicated as an open relationship and also just like being in love, you know what I mean? Like this is clearly so, there was truth in it, you know, like I haven't necessarily (laughs) been sleeping with a married man ever in my life, but I have been in love in my 20s and it does complicate things and you do complicate it for yourself Um, Mm -hmm. just because you want to be the main the main character in in whatever this story of being a new adult is so i yeah. really like that about it
1: yeah so. i like that too and you know there's that part where bobby is fighting with francis and she's like you don't even see anyone else as real like you yeah. are the only person in your mind and, and yeah. that's true that kind of sums up the like the youthful folly in a yeah. sense the, yeah. the selfishness the narcissism of francis in her young years yeah, yeah uh and yeah i think the back half really delivers in kind of unraveling that and showing the consequences of that fully like yeah again that incredible uh conflict or argument with melissa oh so good you yeah you see it finally click in france's mind she's like god yeah though everything i have done it has impacted people who are not just me yeah um and what have i actually done here like what is my responsibility yeah that's just like like, a terrific moment
0: yeah and like i'm struggling like this Mm. this is difficult for me i i don't know what i'm doing Mm -hmm. i mean that and plus i really appreciated especially through jemima kirk just because she is such a good actress and i really Mm -hmm. want her to get more roles i i genuinely hope that this is because yeah. we, we basically know her only from girls, girls and also sex yeah. education, which is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, neither here nor there. But this, w- I really love seeing her here. Just her character and the way that she performs the complications of marriage. The way I think because in the book you kind of get the 20-year-old looking into this marriage perspective of it. And I think in the TV show you get a little bit more of, like, where Melissa is coming from. Um,
1: mm-hmm. And you, you kind of humanize yeah. her a little bit more. Yeah, Um, definitely. I think she's, um, uh, the series is a little bit more uh, in line with her point of view. Yeah. yeah. What do you think of the ending? Which is, of course, it's true to the book. So, thoughts on that in particular? Oh, uh, realistic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah, like, that's gonna go on until Francis is, like, 25, 26. Mm -hmm. That's how I felt in the book, too, because it was just like, you don't just give up a hot guy like that. (laughs) <laughs> Especially because it's so complicated and I feel like so much of her self-worth is rooted into him, which is just the, the perfect breeding ground for continuing
1: something like that. What did you watch this week, Colin? Uh
0: This week I started watching The Staircase, which you can find on HBO Max. It is an eight-part miniseries created by Antonio Campos. Who is co-show running it with Maggie Cohn? So the staircase. When before this drama series uh, was released, there was only one the staircase, and it was the the documentary the staircase, which you can find on Netflix. Um, but for those of you like me that didn't know, um, this is based on the true story of Kathleen Peterson's death in two thousand and one. And the trial that followed um, of Michael Peterson, his, her husband, over her alleged murder because he was accused of murdering her. So she was found at the bottom of the stairs. He called 911 to say that she had fallen down the stairs, but the crime scene was so bloody that it was suggested that he had actually killed her. So that was turned into a documentary series that became very, 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 very popular. <laughs> like, um, it was essentially like true crime craze before true crime craze like really popped off uh mm. with podcasts and whatnot but this this drama series it, it kind of it covers both the details surrounding the case but also the documentarians who covered the case um and that is the the french crew of jean-xavier de Lestrade. so saying all of that <laughs> um we have had five episodes released so far mm. and it's there's three more to go where are you on that five episode release so far jenny
1: I've watched all five. Excellent.
0: Okay, so what did you think when I said I was going to watch this? Did, have you cared about the release of this? Like, because they're just, you know, obviously we've talked about how much TV there is, and like our selections have to be very particular.
1: Well, I had already watched episode one. Um, mm. I think when we were talking about potentially doing this for the pod, yeah. And I think I, I like you with conversations with friends. I don't think I would have continued this necessarily if mm. I hadn't been not forced to but if we weren't going to cover this yeah just because the i know the actor it has a stellar cast mm-hmm. um like real real star star power mm-hmm. and the production value is great um but it's just not the sort of thing i normally gravitate to like yeah. true crime or yeah. like adaptations of real life true crime so i i don't think i would have continued but i'm yeah. glad i glad i did because uh it's really compelling especially as you get into it yeah i mean we share that sentiment
0: about like true crime stuff just because there's so (laughs) there's so much coming out yeah you know there's been obviously on the tech side of it there's a whole bunch of adaptations of of real life stuff but there's like girl from plainville candy Mm. fucking under the banner of heaven just to speak of like stuff that's out right now do you know Mm -hmm. what i mean yeah, it's not, it's not what I reach for. Like I'm an original, like I love mm-hmm. reading original scripts or watching original screenplay stuff. So anyway, mm-hmm. didn't really care for it. But as soon as they announced, uh, who's going to be in it and as soon as the trailer came out, I was like, you know what? Just because it's HBO, I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt. So speaking mm-hmm. of the cast, mm-hmm. um, we have Colin Firth who plays the Michael Pe- Peterson. There's Tony Collette who plays Kathleen, Juliet Binoche. <laughs> who plays Sophie Brunette, um, Parker Posey, um, and then Michael Stilberg, who plays David Rudolph, who's Michael's defense attorney, Sophie Turner, Dane Dehaan, Patrick mm-hmm. Schwarzenegger. Anyway, so just to kind of give a little bit of background about how this show came to be, it has been in development, I think, since 2008. Campos, he he ended up befriending De Lestrade and... Netflix, I think, commissioned Illustrator to do like five more episodes of his eight episode series, um, mm. about like the post trial shit. Um, so he kind of followed them on, on that and they developed a, a really close relationship to kind of see and gain insight into their process, get access to some of the footage that they had and all of that good shit. So it's interesting because it, this is already a very popular documentary series. So what do we gain and do we even need? a dramatization like this like a like a fiction essentially so w- what do you think like do, do you think that it's worth doing this like I, I guess like now that we've seen
1: five episodes of it do you think it was worth it the question of like does something need to exist is always yeah it's a silly question. one something <laughs> yeah. of over- a fraught one because yeah, yeah of course n- none of this ever needs to exist none yeah. of anything that we talk about probably need needs to exist in yeah. some need sense but I think like, yeah, it, it, when you get to the point where it's like um, a fictionalized adaptation of a documentary of a real life event, that's like three layers of stuff. Yeah. Then you really have to think about what are you sort of adding to it instead of purely recreating? Yeah. Are there like some sort of themes or meta themes that you are sort of creating or evoking in yeah. this like times? three adaptation or times two adaptation yeah and in this case, I do think that you know having not watched the documentary, I have no idea what that is actually like. Mm-hmm. I'll say that I think it is at least bringing up sort of interesting elements with the inclusion of the documentary coup yeah and this question of like how true crime narratives that we see in the form of you know documentaries, podcasts, etc right now, how are those like brought about how do you get those get shaped by the people in the background um you know yeah. the, in this case a documentary crew and their different i don't know if i want to say biases but kind of like inclinations or mm-hmm. very human like feelings one way or the other like if you are yeah. shooting with someone for years on end or you're you know picking over their footage And editing it, you're watching like hours upon hours, and you feel like you really get to know the people involved in this footage, in this documentary, the subjects, like it's only human to feel something one way or the other, right? Like, sympathy, empathy, pity anger, maybe, like, if you come out on the other end, like, thinking that this person is a shithead, asshole murderer. Like, that's another emotion. So, it's kind of interesting in that element that I think it adds. And, of course, since it's fictionalized, it does have more liberty to sort of dramatize things, draw other themes. Um, I really like what they're doing with the family, in this case, for example. same. Yeah. I I think I agree with everything that you've just said. You know,
0: documentary filmmaking in general has an existential question of objectivity um, yeah that has has been long-standing slash you know exploitation and what that means because as soon as you put a camera in front of someone like you're already the ethics of it are already they start blurring Mm -hmm. um as someone that essentially does make short docs for a living i I find it i find it impossible to not be biased like there are humans and not to say that you know if we all if documentary filmmakers were like robots that they wouldn't because it doesn't matter you're dealing with human behavior
1: yeah and objectivity Um, quote-unquote objectivity is um a myth it's a total myth yeah yeah
0: so it's interesting to see this like through this um scripted series like the meta narrative that campos is trying to pose Mm -hmm. and this series i think the strength of it is that it just poses the questions like it does not try to answer anything well so far it doesn't you know 5 mm-hmm. episodes into it it doesn't feel like they have but it yeah. is certainly making suggestions and one of the suggestions is that that was biased to the point of uh, like certainly that, that that this production was tainted by, by professionals that, that should have known when to stop their bias or their their subjectivity from taking over, you know. Speaking of in the in the later episodes, I don't want to give anything away, obviously. But mm-hmm. with Juliette Vinoche's character, mm-hmm. which which yeah. is partly true just for those that don't already know, I, like she was the editor on the documentary, and they and they ended up having a relationship uh, with Michael Peterson. So anyway, it it's just interesting because I think that. Meta narrative that has been created about what this means like even in episode four i think she narrates like either the trial or post-trial like what objectivity means um especially when it comes to the case of justice and if you listen to everything that she's saying you can tell that this was written very overtly to try and give you the message of like a there's no such thing as objectivity b what is justice even um right
1: you know justice is just like she says Whichever, like two sides telling stories and whichever yeah. one told a better story, you know, that's declared justice.
0: Which is 100% that is how it is for a yeah. lot of trials, especially in America that televises yeah. them. You know, we see that shit with the Herd and Depp case right now. It's actually like oh, wild and insane. So yeah. it's, it's, there is an intelligent thing being threaded throughout this uh, series that I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, uh, apparently, Dylestrade feels really betrayed <laughs> by Campos, <laughs> uh-huh. which I love this shit because I love filmmaker drama in general. Like, you know, Dylestrade felt like he, that Campos was like a brother to him. Like, they've known each other for uh, going on 10 years now. Like, in terms of in relation to this, uh, this documentary, this TV show, he really opened up everything for Campos to take a look at, to really gain access to. And
1: he feels a little bit like he was cheated by Campos mm-hmm. because we, like does he feel that Campos more or less called him biased. you know portrayed yeah. him as yeah biased yeah, or... as,
0: as biased and that, like apparently it wasn't like that and again we're dealing with humans it's understandable if that is how de Lestrade feels it also yeah. like we don't know we don't know if that's necessarily true on Campos's end we don't know if he just hammed it up uh, yeah. to make a point which is mm-hmm. that yeah objectivity he doesn't exist um but it's it's interesting. Like again, yeah. like take of that what you will. Um, yeah, make the it does, get,
1: it does get messy with with real oh, figures like directly yeah. Um,
0: yeah. being portrayed on camera. And like yeah. you know, we're we're getting that obviously with like winning time as well. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, that's mm-hmm. that's also interesting. So yeah, I mean, I I think what I really like about just what it's making me think as I'm watching this is I I feel like part of it like the the thing that it satisfies. Is this feeling that like you kind of have access to something that is film-like in the Mm -hmm. way that it played out in terms of like something like an inciting incident happened in real life and you get to kind of decipher it and you get to kind of like analyze it Mm -hmm. and in that you you know the the main thing is that you observe I don't know the darkest depths of human nature or whatever like whether it's Mm -hmm. murder or rape or whatever it might be it's just that with that you know the speculation makes the imagination stretch or shrink. The truth, like depending on what you see fit, um, mm. and I I find it interesting that like we now have here with the staircase HBO Max, not that it belittles true crime fans, but it certainly like is like all right, hand me the keys, I'll drive, you know, like oh, about, about all I of see. it, which is which is really interesting. I don't know if I'm explaining myself correctly, but um, no, 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 I get it. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, so you know, seeing Campos like use this filmmaking device, um. To just actualize and like give credence to this method feels, it feels far more satisfying to me than like listening to a podcast and like having it stretched out over even with, you know, with Netflix documentary series, like the, the running complaint seems to be that it could have been three hours long and it's like 10, you know, like oh, they just stretch uh-huh. it and it just becomes ridiculous. I, I, I want to just shout out like two instances where this device really works in the episodes that we've seen so far. The first one being the way that Campos showcases the scenarios of death for Kathleen. Um, mm-hmm. The first one comes in episode two, and it essentially shows Michael's version of Kathleen's death, the one that he says mm-hmm. happened, which mm-hmm. is that he was by the pool, she fell and tripped down the stairs and died of her own accord. And mm-hmm. then in episode four, we see the death that I guess the prosecution says is what happened, which is that she found out about his uh secret bisexual life and uh they had an argument and then in a moment of rage he killed her um Mm -hmm. you know we saw something like this in i may destroy you and i think everybody kind of appreciated Mm -hmm. that like the different Mm -hmm. scenarios shown back to back and then the viewer gets to decide what they think
1: how did you feel about this because it's a tough sit right i mean yeah they were very hard to watch and of course that's uh intentionally it's real life murder it's real life pain or it's real life death whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it but i thought yeah the use of this device was very smart i thought it was very effective and yeah a lot of what they're doing with sort of the interplay of past and present mm-hmm. and the this sort of interplay of different versions of the same event uh i think that's all highly effective yeah and huge
0: shout out to like the dance between the timelines because yeah but they would dance between a lot like i, I think at least three different timeline timelines in every episode for the most part mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I mean the the second instance of filmmaking, which I think on a technical level is incredible, is in Mm -hmm. episode two where it intercuts it's like a sequence of intercutting between the defence team that's reenacting the night and Mm. also the year prior to Kathleen's death when they were doing when the family was doing a fundraising event at the house as well. Yeah. I mean, really fuck good. me, like when, when we, when I was watching it, I just like turned to my husband and I was like, holy shit, this is so good. <laughs> like it just, yeah. just technically speaking, the way that it blurs into like that timeline back into the real timeline. Like it's so hard to do without confusing the audience. And the way that they did it is just like, there was something very like theatrical about it. Yeah. Um, so I, I really appreciated that. Just the way that it kind of weaved in and out. Yeah. I mean, saying, all of this obviously like so much of it relies on performance uh and it's difficult to perform real people i think Mm -hmm. uh, because you don't know how much of it you you want to like copy and how much you want to make your own but Mm -hmm. saying all of that do you do you have a favorite performance
1: out of the entire cast i think tony collette is as usual very good uh at, at sort of embodying the exhaustion of having to be that kind of wife that yeah. kind of mom that kind of yeah. uh executive yeah um, and she has the hardest and- job out of anybody else out of her castmates as well because she
0: she's acting someone who is dead you know so
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: but yeah what about you um i'm a big fan of odessa young's performance she plays martha which is mm-hmm. uh one of the two the the younger daughter that was adopted um uh, mm-hmm. back back in germany and i think Out of all the children, I think she, they've given her the most to work with. Um, Yeah. So, so there's that. But also, I think just watching her frustration <laughs> play out um is is fascinating there's like a part where she's acting with sophie turner who plays her young uh o- older sister where she like hits herself in the head in frustration i was like holy shit that is yeah yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> that is something yeah, that can, if i was in her position you can i would see do it. yeah totally you can see like building up in her yeah to the point where there are like these small releases like that that are already kind of terrifying and then like the big explosion and yeah uh, yeah very definitely like you know the most material to work with but also like really uh rising up to that occasion for
0: sure i mean i I think colin firth will get an Emmy nomination for sure um because i think i I like what he's doing with it in the like he's certainly doing his version of the guy which i Mm. always love like i hate a perfect copy of of a Mm. real person so and i think like whatever they were going for in terms of that smarmy arrogant dickhead um (laughs) he's so good at playing that just because he's british so it's just like undercurrently within him um Mm. i also want to give a shout out to parker posey i think Mm -hmm. people seem to be split on
1: her performance i fucking love it um I heard that she nailed the accent mm-hmm. per- like perfectly of yeah. not like, you know, particular regionality necessarily, but of the person she's portraying. Yeah.
0: And I think it's funny because I think people say that she's comedic relief, which she certainly is. Like there are parts that are really funny. Um, especially when she's talking about rimming. Uh, but <laughs> uh, I think I, I'm a big fan of it because I think there is just something that she represents that is like, this almost cartoonish american way of thinking of the courtroom which you Mm -hmm. see all the time when you see like actual footage of american courtrooms when it comes to stuff like this and you're just like are you serious like you're like like saul goodman level of Mm -hmm. joke joke but so i i appreciate what she's doing with that role and just the amount of like eyeshadow that they're piling on her Mm-hmm. Wow! Very uh, Just, time, yeah. appropriate. Yeah, and the French manicured in it, fantastic. Like, absolutely, yes. Um, so yeah, shout out to the cast. I think, I think they're doing a decent job. Um, I think my only criticism of this is that the trial ends at the uh, at the end of episode four, and then episode five is kind of beginning to talk about the appeals process. You know, R- Michael is already in prison for six months, and then we kind of have a glimpse into what the kids are doing. I don't know if I care that much about it. Like, it felt like a little bit more of a slog to get through than the rest of the episodes, which, like, felt so quick-paced, um, mm-hmm. and had so much authority to them. So I'm curious to see what's gonna happen in episodes six, seven, and eight, how they're gonna end it. Cause they've already posed the questions, um, and I think they've already kind of covered whatever the theme that they say they're gonna cover. Um, so I'm hoping that they I don't. See. Yeah, I'm hoping that they don't like tire it out and then like make me sick of the, the, the whatever it is that they're trying to say. Yeah, uh,
1: I mean, I, I have a feeling they're probably going to cover the whole. Oh, the entire. Uh, yeah, I mean, we saga. Yeah, which yeah. is kind of interesting. But I, mm-hmm. I, so I like. I'm interested in seeing how that plays out. But also, mm-hmm. I get what you're saying in that it feels like they they sort of said their piece and the, naturally the sort of wind in their sails from the momentum of the trial like that sort of drops by just like how how it is
0: yeah saying all of that i kind of i kind of want this whole true crime phase to end um it obviously won't it won't yeah like i feel like we still have another five years of this shit to get through um but hey but hey here we are (laughs) um i just want to end on a simple yes or no okay do you think he did it
1: (laughs) uh great question i think my answer is gonna be yes Mm. what about you i agree all right yeah there we are (laughs) sorry michael with that yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) so for culture notes this week we are back to the demise of netflix which we have kind of lightly touched upon previously especially after the price hikes and everything and kind of Trying to figure out the existential question of Netflix, how it can Mm -hmm. exist as a tech company. But why are we
1: talking about it this week, Jenny? So Netflix has been in the headlines because they have laid off uh, 150-some employees. Yeah. You know, this is part of kind of some high-profile layoffs that have happened recently, including the gutting of their editorial Mm -hmm. – quote-unquote editorial website to do (laughs) – Um, The marketing branch, as I like to call it. The marketing branch. (laughs) You know, they most recently with this these layoffs, they have targeted their animation departments, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of these things. So it's sort of in the news. There's sort of a kind of doomsday feeling about it. This is a continuation of a long-running problem with Netflix this past year, especially, I'd say, because Mm – they have seen slower growth more or less plateauing in subscribers and even losing subscribers i think in a the most recent quarter and of course like for a company like netflix that is still in growth mode supposedly it's a silicon, big silicon valley thing they they want more or less unlimited growth yes yeah. explosive growth all the time yep this is kind of That's the only uh, currency yeah, that's the only currency they can't. They don't even need to be making any real money, which I don't think they really are. But yeah, it's prompting this sort of look back at Netflix and like, what is going on here, and is this the beginning of the end, and what can they do to like sort of stop it, and like, what is the state of streaming yeah. industry yeah. wide in general? Yeah, Joe Adalian at, the, at Vulture, he. Covers this frequently, um, in his newsletter. He has a lot has a lot of really smart things to say about this. But yeah, I I guess one of the biggest problems is more or less that you know there's just not enough content keeping people tied to Netflix. It's to the point where you know the execs at Netflix they want like one huge hit per month, like a franchise or a series or something that will keep people coming back to it, and new releases that are on par with that. And yeah. it, it's just sort of like not keeping up and this is sort of it's sort of it's like the age where a lot of screenwriters and tv writers can find employment because there's so many projects that are being greenlit getting money thrown at them and yet still like it's not that easy to put out great original content all the
0: time. Yeah. I think it was a vice piece that talked about like a lot of screenwriters are doing their shows for the first time with like no previous training whatsoever. And they kind of Uh feel like they're in the deep end and they don't really have mentors or they don't really have like, I don't know, five to 10 years of working on a serialized TV show to kind of give them that training um Mm -hmm. and and what that means and and obviously what that means is like sometimes a tv show doesn't deliver at the higher level that it should um Mm -hmm. and that's usually an issue with with netflix because they are so quick to green light and then cancel shows yes so they are
1: like notoriously they'll cancel after often one season but uh, for other things like three seasons seems to be about their max for like any given show but yeah
0: and um you know my my thing that i've always said (laughs) in the last like three to four years is that i don't think many of these shows should have been greenlit in the first place Mm -hmm. and i think like now we're seeing that being proved right because for hbo max and for disney plus and for apple tv the training wheels are off like mm-hmm. they were, they were just starting around the pandemic and they have kind of found their footing and they know, and they understand, and they wanted to be a real competitor for Netflix. Yeah. And they're finally there, you know, like this is why there's, there's a splintering now that was, was bound to happen. And yeah, it's a library problem. Like HBO Max, mm-hmm. like even though it's fucking annoying to navigate that and like the first 10 seconds of anything I watch on that app seems to freeze. I still, yeah. <laughs> I still prefer it as a platform because it's just clearer. Like, and I know yeah. that whatever I'm gonna pick to watch there is the base level of quality is gonna be higher than the base level of quality that on Netflix. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, something that Joe Adalian talked about in terms of like what Netflix is trying to bank on, you know, the the, the gutting of the quote unquote editorial uh, department of them trying to you know <laughs> uh, infiltrate the social media currency. Uh, and clout Mm -hmm. Um, they put that aside and they're just investing in their crown jewels and one of the crown jewels is stranger things which is the season four is coming out pretty soon Mm -hmm. and the last season season three was in 2019 a lot has changed in those three years for tv and how people watch things but they're still leaning into it because it's such a heavy hitter for them like stranger things for some (laughs) listen i i did not watch season two onwards so no idea. I've not watched any of Stranger Things, so. But cannot you speak are to even better than me. Season one was good. <laughs> Season one was good. Don't get mm-hmm. me wrong. I get why people are into it. But it is apparently apparently it's just like one of their highest like the the back catalogue of it is is very um it brings a lot of return for them. So yeah. mm-hmm. for them to kind of like really bank on that and hope that people come back for it or new people subscribe to it, like the release model for Stranger Things has changed. Like they've split it up now like they used Mm -hmm. to just drop everything all at once they've stopped doing that because now that like i think every streaming service has realized that people prefer a week to week or two episode to two episode release um yeah so that's interesting and it's also like i don't know if that's going to be enough and i think joe dalian says that in the in the newsletter too like again the stranger things in 2019 is not going to be the stranger things in 2022 so We'll see how it plays out. I find it fascinating. You know, we, I think, especially now that everybody is closely following this type of thing and the kind of seeing the rise and then the fall of something like this is always fascinating to watch, but we don't know if we're in the full stage, like proper, you know, like it kind of feels like the smell of it is coming off, but we don't know if we're in it for real, for real. Yeah.
1: I mean, this is what happens with tech companies over and over and over again. That's just like the, the magnificent rise Mm -hmm. and then fall, like it's just an unsustainable model uh the the push for constant growth and and constant returns like it's it's just fucked is what it is yeah. and i think people are realizing or maybe some people are like coming to terms with the fact that yeah netflix is another tech company yeah. it's just another tech company, even though yeah. it dresses it up in all of its content it's you know entertainment its adjacency to sort of like digital content yeah. you know we see a lot of digital writers and culture writers Mm -hmm. who like tried to make the move over to Netflix. And unfortunately many of them were laid off recently. Um, This is yet another big Silicon Valley tech giant that is faltering. Like so many of them have and and will continue to. Yeah.
0: I don't know. I I don't mean to put anybody out of work or celebrate it or anything. (laughs) And they have, they have released like decent, decent stuff that we've celebrated as well over the past like however many years it's just there is something that feels very good about the fact that when it comes down to it people just want good quality entertainment and sometimes you can't take that you can't stretch it so thin that it's just not enough anymore all right so that's it from us this week if you are watching anything that you think we should check out that we haven't mentioned any films as well it doesn't have to be tv shows if you saw a film it's much easier for us to watch a film so just just a quick little heads up uh, please uh, let us know by emailing us at criticismisdead at gmail.com or adding us or DMing us at criticismisdead one word on twitter and instagram for extended show notes queen jenny uh, includes links and everything else that we've been talking about plus her excellent meme and twitter selections they are all <laughs> on our sub stack criticismisdead.substack.com as always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts with that sweet five stars. If you're, not, if it's not going to be five, just don't worry about it. You know, it's fucking, it's annoying to review anyway. <laughs> so unless you really love us, don't bother. Um, but in the meantime, tell a friend about us if you like us. That's our real currency. That's what we love. Um, and we will see you next week.
1: Bye.
0: Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Liu and Jenny John. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sara Macias and Andrew Luke.